podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers, Episode 4. I'm your host, Ben Pfaff. This episode is an interview with Thomas Graff. Thomas is a developer and a great guy. He's an Open vSwitch committer, which means that he knows Open vSwitch inside and out, so you can be sure that his opinions related to OVS are based on actual knowledge. Thomas lives in Switzerland, so I was excited to be able to get a few minutes with him last week when he passed through the Bay Area. This episode is mostly about Celium. Celium isn't part of Open vSwitch and doesn't use Open vSwitch, but it points in a direction that Open vSwitch might need to follow if it's going to keep improving performance-wise and feature-wise. It's an experiment, and I hope that OVS and other networking projects out there can learn from the results. On to the interview. sitting here with Thomas Graff, and I've worked with Thomas for a while on Open vSwitch. Do you want to start out by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, I'm Thomas. I have a kernel background, and I've uh, been involved with Linux kernel development and open source for a while. Still back at Red Hat, Chris Wright approached me and told me about OVS, and that it was important for Red Hat to have an OVS story and to package it for Red Hat. That's how I got involved in OVS. Um, it's how I met you, how I met Justin, and everybody else. Yeah, I've been doing open source for, for a long while. Today I want to talk about the, the new project that I've seen you present a couple of times uh, called Cilium. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, it's called Cilium and it's, it's really just a science project right now, something we're, we're hacking on. You often describe it as a, like an experiment or, or a demo. What are you trying to learn from your experiment? Basically the, the ground question we're, we're asking ourselves is how do you scale container networking, how do you solve policy in a container environment, which is different from a traditional environment because you, all of a sudden we're talking about millions of endpoints and things like that. Nobody has done that before at scale except for Google and Facebook. Um, so it's, it's really an experiment because we don't know the outcome yet, right? So I would call that an experiment. Is it just the quantity that makes containers different from VMs? I think it's the quantity. It's also the difference in duration of workloads. VMs would typically not appear and disappear within seconds or minutes whereas containers are likely to be started. Um, as you scale up an application, you might store thousands of containers within a couple of seconds, and then if the load decreases, you will stop them again. I think this imposes very different requirements on the orchestration system and on networking and on the policy layer and so on. So that, that does seem like a, a pretty strong requirement. So how does Cilium address that? So we, we apply something that I often describe as a unikernel-like approach. We leverage a technology called BPF, which is which stands for Berkeley Packet Filter. It's pretty old. It's been it comes from BSD. It's a bytecode language that allows you um, to run code inside the Linux kernel. More recently, BPF has been extended to include a JIT compiler. So in the end, even though you're loading bytecode into the kernel, it runs native as native CPU instructions. It's a very efficient way to program a data path or something like a filter or even a policy engine into the kernel. And we use that technology to generate BPF programs for every individual container. So instead of having a single pipeline and then configuring a pipeline uh, through, for example, a flow table, we're actually generating source code for a particular container. And then any packet to that container or any packet from that container will go through that specific pipeline. This has the advantage that you can minimize the program because depending on the needs of that particular container, the program can be can include whatever functionality that is needed. 
I think that when I've heard you explain it before, you've talked about how part of the, the point is to invoke the eBPF program really early before it really yes. gets into the SK buff. So how, how does that work? Yeah, so this is, this is something new that's, it's not, that's been discussed right now. It's not, not merged yet. It's something called the Express Data Path or Access, Express Data Plane, XDP. It comes out of, originally discussion started, Cloudflare was using ETH2 to drop packets in the NIC and they were using BPF to filter packets and figure out what packets or what, what packets to drop. Um, because Linux is not good at handling packet drops quickly. If you send a lot of packets to a Linux machine, just dropping them it causes a lot of CPU overhead. And at that point, the idea came up, why don't we allow to introduce BPF programs at the network driver level to run a BPF program when the driver is invoked and before we even allocate any metadata for a packet. Leveraging that for more than dropping would will allow to introduce a forwarding engine uh, which is invoked directly from the network driver and achieve DPDK-like performance semantics or performance goals without actually leaving the kernel. So the, the program and the functionality is still inside the kernel but it benefits from the very same optimization techniques while still being able to uh, leverage kernel facilities as for example the existing very well optimized TCP stack that Linux offers. So that sounds to me almost like a kind of a holy grail of, of forwarding performance. DPDK is really fast, but on the other hand, you lose all those facilities that have been carefully baked into Linux over a period of, of such a long time, the, the TCP stack and everything else. So what's the drawback? We don't know yet, right? This is very young with very new technology. As with any open source project, it depends on consensus in the community and it's not entirely clear how this will look like. Right now we're not seeing a lot of drawback. I think it's a good balance between the extreme of DPDK and the other extreme of the existing Linux stack, which was heavily optimized for just server use cases. Um, and this would be a balance between a packet forwarding optimized engine and a, an existing traditional server uh, engine. So right now we're not seeing too many drawbacks, but that's why we try it out. That's why we work on it. That's why we we want, to, we want to find out whether it's a, it's a suitable solution. I think I can see how you can get a hook in that looks at the packet before the SK buff is really there. Yep. But once you've made a decision to send it somewhere, how do you actually get it there fast? I think in the first step you would always still punt it to the Linux stack and the Linux stack would process the packet just as before. The difference is that if you can make the policy decision, the decision whether you want to actually receive the packet if you can do that at driver level, at least you're not, you're not causing overhead for any packets that you don't want to process. So that's the first gain, right? Linux is pretty efficient in terms of receiving bulk transfer to a Linux, to a, to a socket. It's doing worse, a lot worse, when doing actual per packet um, modifications or per, pa per packet um, actions. That's where Linux does not accelerate. And, and one of those actions would be drop, and if you do the drop early on in driver, that's, that's the first benefit we would see. Then the second benefit is simply if you do something like a local engine now for local answer. That's a case where you don't depend on the stack because you would typically uh, mangle the packet and then send it out another port or the same port it came in on. And if you can do all of that out of a BPF program, you can eventually implement a full L3, L4 local answer in the BPF and you never even hit the slow paths or the existing socket optimized paths that the Linux stack offers. 
So Linux is optimized to deliver things to sockets, yes. and if a packet is going to get forwarded on and not necessarily delivered to a socket, then some of that is, is overhead and, and, and not otherwise useful? Yes, so the, the, the base principle of Linux is that it uses something called segmentation or floating, where if you are sending packet from a socket or if you are receiving packet to a socket, Linux will combine multiple packets into one very large frame, up to 64K, and instead of transmitting 10 or 20 or 30 packets through the stack, you would only transmit one. So you reduce the, the pair packet overhead by um, only going through the stack once. Obviously, like there is always a latency versus throughput balance that you have to find, but it's essentially if you are transmitting a lot of data, segmentation offloading is, is how Linux optimizes that case. That's called the TSO, right? Yes, TSO and the, the, gen the generic optimization without hard requirement is called GSO, generic segmentation of loading. One thing you mentioned a couple of times is that you can drop packets faster if, if you get them early. Is that a useful optimization? I, I mean, is it common for servers to be dropping a lot of packets? Yeah, so I think a lot of application, a lot of op op operators running applications, they assume that they're on, on the constant attack, right? So it's um, it could be deliberate attacks, it could be mis misbehaving networks, it could be simply noise, it could be anything, right? Being able to drop packets is vital to making sure that you can make your application reachable at all times. I guess I hadn't thought about the, uh, the attack workload. I've, I've never been, uh, worked in an operator, so these things don't come to mind. One of the things that DPDK people talk about quite a bit is performance at small packet yes. sizes. It sounds like you're more concerned about performance with large packet sizes. Do you have any thoughts about the importance of those workloads? I definitely see the need, in particular coming out of the NFV, SFC world, where they deal with, for example, voice, or they have real-time requirements where small packets are required. That's where the existing Linux stack would not perform well. And that's where something which model closer to, an, to a traditional hardware switch employed in software would do a lot better. I think that's where, that's where we see DPDK use a lot. In the typical server case, this could be a video streaming application, or this could be in any, any, any application that like, delivers some form of media, you typically have a very small request and then a bulk transfer returning payload back, such as a video or a large picture. And that's where something like TSO, GSO will help you because you're transmitting like maybe four megabytes or maybe even gigabytes of traffic back from one particular request. That makes sense. We've gone really deep in one direction. Let's step back just a little bit. We've got these eBPF programs and, and that's what we send to the kernel to figure out what to do with the packet early on. How do you write eBPF programs? So there's a couple of ways, right? There's a compiler collection which allows you to write BPF in couple of languages. For example, you can write in sudo C and then use LLVM clang to translate into the BPF bytecode. There's also a BCC uh, compiler collection which allows you to write Python code which gets translated into BPF bytecode. You, you can write the programs in Python? Yes. Wow. So in particular the tracing, so the, the other use case for BPF is tracing and a lot of the tracing functionality or the tracing folks, they use Python quite a lot to, to write BPF. Code. You can also write BPF bytecode yourself if you want. <laughs> Have you ever tried that? I'm, I'm not that. I'm not, I don't like pain that much. So, ah. <laughs> so uh, I, I understand that there's a lot of restrictions on eBPF because of the need for the, the verifier to yes. make sure that the programs are safe. Yeah. Can you write the programs in a natural way given all those restrictions? 
Pretty much. So the, the most obvious limitation is that your program cannot have loops right now. There is a, a workaround. You can, you can use a compiler pragma to unroll loops uh, or let the compiler unroll loops. That will work if you, if you have a fixed size number of iterations. Um, so if you, if you simply write C code, um, you cannot just loop around things. You can loop with the functionality called TCP uh, BPF tail calls. A, a tail call is the ability to call into a other BPF program. And with tail calls, you could loop programs, you could loop back, and then there's simply an, an iteration limit in terms of how many, how many, how many times you can iterate over the same pro program. Uh, the other limitation is that the verifier ensures that your program does not have any uninitialized data or memory, so you have to initialize every single bit. If you write something onto the stack, you cannot leave it uninitialized. That's, I think, the two main differences if you are coming from like a pure C programming world. That makes sense. How are you writing the eBPF programs in Celium? We, we have a, um, a base program which is written in C code, which does implement the basic forwarding pipeline. And then we have a Go agent, a agent written in Go, which generates on top of that additional C, additional C files. And we generate a header file, which contains most of the configuration. And in there, you would have um, definitions and, and configuration. And then in a C file, you would simply if def code in and out, depending on how the, the container is configured. You have something that, that generates a, a header file, yes, and, and then you, you run a, a C compiler on, on that. Yes, so we, we, we run, we generate the, the, C, pro, the C program and, and the header file, and then we, use, we run LLVM with a target to BPF bytecode that gives us a BPF object file. Um, and then we run a tool called TC, which is uh, it uses Netlink um, to configure Q the QS traffic control layer of the Linux kernel, and we install a TC ingress classifier and load the BPF bytecode into the kernel. That will trigger the verifier, so it will ensure that uh, the program is safe to run, that it cannot crash the kernel. And if the validation has succeeded, it will JIT compile and inject the pure program or the, the JIT compile program into the kernel. I don't usually think of production environments as having compiler tool chains like LLVM installed, and I've always thought that that was one of the things holding back, for yes. example, DKMS, uh, where a, a host has to compile it, its own kernel modules. Do you think that will make it difficult for eBPF to be, be adopted or, 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 or Cilium? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a valid question. I believe that one of the benefits of container packaging is that it's trivial to package something like Cilium together with LLVM Clang in that particular compiler version that you need and simply run Cilium on the container host. So the, the operator doesn't actually need to understand and fulfill certain requirements in terms of tool chains installed on his operating system. The agent itself will run as a container image. So you don't need to, um, let's say, compromise your operating system that you use to run your containers. It, it will run as a self-contained container image. Oh, another uh, use for containers, a, yeah. a, a very uh, systems, low-level use for them. I think that's actually the main, the main motivator for a lot of people to use containers. It's the simplification of packaging and deployment. So is it expensive to compile and, and recompile the eBPF programs? And do you have to do it very often? So we believe that there will be events that you need to recompile the program. For example, uh, if 
you change the labels on a container, which is something that a lot of people are working on, um, there might be an event that you want to recompile. In general, I would not see that you, this event happens very, very frequently. It wouldn't matter though, because the operation itself is, is very fast. It takes less than a second to compile everything and load it into the kernel. So even if you have a use case which requires to regenerate the program quickly and often, that would not be a problem. Also, there is a concept of BPF maps, which are shared memory data structures of different types, so hash tables, arrays, and so on. And they allow you to communicate between BPF programs and user space and between BPF programs. So even if you don't, so for certain cases, you would not need or want to regenerate the, uh, the program. You would simply configure the program through the map, for example. If you add an additional consumer of a container, so a policy, um, you would update the map and not need to regenerate the program entirely. So that, that brings us to policy, which I don't, I don't think we've really talked about uh, policy in, in ceiling uh, very much yet. So how does it work? So the, the base concept that we, that we follow is that we do not want to require anybody specifying policy to understand networking, in particular addressing, and we want to decouple policy definition from the addressing model itself. So it should not matter what address a container has and what port it runs on um, to define the policy. So it's very different from traditional firewall ACLs, which would typically be a list of rules which match on IP addresses and ports and things like that. Instead, we leverage uh, the container labels and we allow to define a policy which simply uh, states that a number of labels are allowed to talk to another number of labels. So you label your containers, um, and depending on those labels, you basically whitelist application combinations which can talk to each other. This makes a lot of sense in the container world because typically you have a particular application which is represented as, as a number of containers. And then if the application needs to scale up and you start more containers, those containers will have the same label or, or they would share labels. And they would all require the same policy. And it does not make sense to uh, whitelist each individual IP address of every container. Instead, you want to have a common label which describes that application and, and, and be able to specify policy on that. So instead of specifying policy in terms of containers or identifiers for, for containers, you do it in terms of classes of containers yes, described yeah, with labels. Yes, that's a very good to describe. Yeah. Is there a cross-product problem in uh, figuring out the, the, the containers that, that can talk to each other? Yeah, maybe that's that's a valid that's a valid concern. Like, how many labels will we have? I think it's um, right now the way we solve that is we need you to whitelist the labels that you want to use for policy. So we do not automatically look at all labels. You need to specify that I'm only I'm only using these labels with certain prefix uh, for policy, and then we will only look at labels matching that prefix for policy purposes. That's how we limit the complexity of labels right now. So you're, you're using labels that, that come from uh, some underlying container system yes. that, that aren't specific to Cilium? Yes, so currently we support labels coming from Docker and from Kubernetes. Both have their own specification in terms of how you can assign labels. What do you think the, the lesson is uh, for us to learn from the, the policy system in, in Cilium? What, what, uh, what insight have you derived from it so far? So I think the interesting part is that it, it's very it's fast, right? So one of the observations we've made is that when we run performance tests, BPF is fast and gives it gives a great balance between performance and flexibility and programmability. Um, it's definitely an experiment that replaces the flow-based model to a 
program or a code generation based pipeline. The label based policy model scales up really nicely in terms of the number, as, as your policy complexity grows, we do not um, impose additional overhead in the data plane. It's a single hash table lookup. I think the open question is that we're still investigating it, is how does the policy definition language and specification scale? And that's what I think still very early on to figure out like what kind of complexity of policy will be needed when running containers. When I have an incoming packet, then the EPPF program will look, uh, look up the labels for that packet in a hash table? So basically we translate the labels associated with each container to a U cluster unique uh, ID. So each container has, or each container sharing the same set of labels has, uh, has, to, has a matching ID. And then whenever we send out a packet, we, we tag that ID along with the packet. And then on the receiving side, we have both the, let's say, the source, the source label ID and the destination label ID of the container we're sending to. And then it's a simple problem of figuring out whether one ID can talk to another ID, and that's a simple, simple hash table lookup. And the hash table contains a verdict? Yes, right now it's simply true-false. I think going forward we could see additional actions such as port mapping, sending notifications somewhere. It's sim very similar to OpenFlow, right? You could have um, different actions and, and rules. Does the policy get applied at the destination or at the source? Or right both? now it's, get, it's getting applied at the destination. This simplifies the requirement um, to know about what containers are running in the cluster. If you do it at the destination, and you tag the label ID with the packet, you don't actually need to know about all containers in the cluster. If you want to do it at the source, you will need to figure out the, the label ID of your destination based on the IP address and the port number. So you would need to know, you would need to do a lookup on the address you're sending to to figure out which container it's actually going to and then resolve the labels or the label ID. It, it makes sense, but it complicates the policy enforcement quite a bit. In Open vSwitch, in, in the community, we've been talking for a while now about how we can make use of eBPF for various purposes. Mm -hmm. Do you think Celium sheds any light on that and what direction we should yeah, take? Yeah, I think it's the first, the first uh, conclusion is definitely it's possible. Uh, BPF is powerful enough um, to, do, to do it. I think the second conclusion was that use of the perforing buffer, which, we, which is a, a very fast communication way between the kernel and user space, um, for profiling and tracing needs is a very good way to send packet notifications from kernel to user space. So this could be a replacement or an improvement for the current OBS opcall right now. And I think the third option is that, or the third conclusion is that the packet, the packet flow or a flow-based model is not the only uh, way to do it uh, in, so in particular in software on commodity CPUs. So that might be another like question that, that we can ask where it makes sense to for example, translate OVN directly into code generation instead of going through a flow-based approach. But that's probably reaching far. So everything you've described so far makes Cilium sound pretty simple, and some of the things that OVS, Open vSwitch does, are fairly sophisticated, like connection tracking. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's practical to implement connection tracking in an eBPF program? Yeah, so we, we, we started experimenting with connection tracking. We've implemented a basic connection tracker right now. It is a subset of what NetField Connection Tracker would provide you, which is what OVS is currently using. It's fast, because currently some limitations. Right now, hash tables in BPF or BPF maps are fixed size. 
So you need to take a good guess at how big you like size your hash table, for example. That's something that um, NetFilter connection tracking can do better right now. But I think it's only a matter of time to extend BPF and to develop it further. Essentially, the conclusion is that it's possible if, if needed. You could also leverage the, the NetFilter connection tracking from BPF, though that's another option. That's something we'll look at as well. Um, that we might enable as well, that you can choose whether to use an optimized subset uh, of the connection tracker or to actually use the NetFilter connection tracker directly. Have you run into anything where you wanted to implement a feature but you concluded that the limitations in eBPF or, or in something uh, in the kernel were, were too severe and it just didn't make sense to try? Um, we never encountered yet, that yet. We, we encountered the event a couple of times where the current set of functionality in BPF was not sufficient to implement the required functionality. One example is we started and we have implemented NAT46, uh, which is a mechanism that allows translating between IPv4 and IPv6. And the set of BPF helper functions, I'm not sure I've explained BPF helper functions yet. BPF helper functions are a API function calls that you can make out of your BPF program that allows you to use existing kernel facilities, such as encapsulation, timing function, metadata extraction, things like that, loading bytes from the packet, writing bytes to the packet. So something that was, for example, missing was the ability to change the protocol type of the SKB metadata. So if you are translating from IPv4 to IPv6, you need to tell the kernel that, hey, this is now an IPv6 frame and the checksum offsets are different, things like that. So what we, it turned out that extending BPF helper set is fairly straightforward, so we have extended the helper API properly. Which comes, which leads to the downside of all of this right now, you need the latest and greatest Linux kernel to use any of this. eBPF is, as far as I know, Linux kernel specific. Do you think it should have any applicability to other targets like DPDK yes. or the, the Hyper-V port? So there's, there's already talk about that inside a foundation called IOVisor. There's definitely intent to be able to run BPF programs unmodified on different platforms, including DPDK and maybe other operating systems. The vision is that you would have modules and building blocks in BPF that are portable across multiple platforms. If we're going to port it to DPDK, does it make sense to compile the eBPF at all, or should we just compile the native code? Presumably with DPDK, there isn't the same safety uh, uh, concern, unless you're just concerned about, say, bugs in your BPF program. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think there, there is value to being able to verify a program because you can, in particular, if you generate code, it's difficult to test if you are always generating valid code. If you have a verifier in between, um, you are ensuring that you're actually only loading the program if it's safe to run. But I agree that, in particular, if you leave the kernel context, we might not need the full verification and uh, restrictions of BPF. It might make sense to actually compile the code natively, absolutely. How much of a penalty do you get uh, when you compile the eBPF and then you JIT it? Uh, that's difficult to measure, right? So um, the compiler can obviously not optimize in the very same way as, for example, a LoVM or GCC can do natively. So there is definitely a penalty, but I, I, I have no specific, I don't have a number. I guess if we ported eBPF to DPDK and then we tried it natively too, we'd yeah. be able to compare. Yes. Might be interesting yeah. at, at some point. Sometime back, the Open vSwitch kernel module had kind of a poor reputation among the kernel developers uh, because it gave them this idea that 
OpenVS, which was trying to do everything itself instead mm -hmm. of working with the existing uh, kernel interfaces. And you helped a lot to, to, to fix that up and, and, and sort of repair the reputation. Do, do you think there's a risk of that happening with eBPF because it is essentially, in some cases, being used to, to go off and, and do yeah. things by itself? So VPF initially, and I think this is true for any new subsystem, it was very controversial in the beginning. And it was, and I, I, I'm telling that because I was involved on the other side pretty much. So initially when EPPF was, was first announced at a plumber's conference in um, New Orleans, there were a lot of open questions, for example, licensing. How can you load a non-GPL BPF program into the kernel? Or can, uh, how can I make sure that only GPL bytecode can use my helper functionality? Or how do we ensure? Is is a verifier absolutely like trustworthy? Because eventually BPF allows unprivileged users to load BPF bytecode into the kernel. And these were the open questions. There was a lot of controversy in the beginning, and it took over a year to actually convince uh, everybody that this makes sense. And uh, it definitely helped that this is a, a very good fit for tracing, and it's a very good fit for. Uh, packet forwarding for networking for filtering um, for, for dropping packets and things like that so it's I think it's gone a long way but at this point it's well understood and there is good consensus that uh, BPF is a subsystem that is to stay inside the Linux kernel. I just have one minor question there you talk about how you how unprivileged users can can load it presumably a, a networking system would would have privilege. What what are some cases where an unprivileged user would would usefully load eBPF code in, into the kernel? I think the main driver is definitely tracing. So if you have an application developer running application locally, you do not want or you do not want to require that that user to gain or to have root privileges in order to use tracing for his particular application. I think that was it was less networking. I think it was driven by the tra tra tracing use cases of eBPF. But um, I'm not 100% familiar with, with where the motivation came from. Oh, I see. So it's probably for use cases where a developer is doing yes. something specific yes. to his application yes. rather than a, a system-wide kind yes. of work. Yes. Oh, that makes sense. So what's next for Celium? Uh, so we're working on local lancing. We're working on encryption, integration of IPsec. Uh, I think that's maybe that's conclusion number four. If we, if we succeed in making encryption available through BPF, that would be available to OBS as well. I think that would be an interesting case. We have been asked to add IPv4 support. So Cilium right now is IPv6 only. We do allow IPv4 connectivity through NAT 4.6, but there is IPv4 has been asked for. So it's something we will add in the future. So we've had a really good conversation here. Is there anything else you want to make sure that people know? Yeah, first of all, I would want to thank you for, for having me on your podcast. I listened to the first episode on the way here. I think you're doing a fantastic job. Thank well, you thank you. Much. So how, how can people find out more about Cilium? Um, right now it's not, a, it's not a public repo, we're still working on the source code, and we'll, but it will be an open source project. Uh, if you're interested, feel free to shoot me an email, you can find my email address on the OBS mailing list, I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. Do you want to say anything more about uh, how people can get in contact with you? Sure, you can also find me on Twitter or Facebook, anywhere. Right? I, I've seen a couple of... Uh, presentations about Celium from you, are, are any of those available for people to, to look at? Yeah, we'll publish slides and probably also a demo and video in the next couple of days, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for spending so much time with me. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Ben.
edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution unported 3.0 license. For more information about OpenVSwitch and OVS Orbit, please visit openvswitch.org.